Well, we're in Hosea, uh, chapter 5, beginning of verse 8. Hosea, chapter 5, beginning of verse 8. I hope you are able to find it easily now, but if you've forgotten, find Ezekiel, and then Daniel, then Hosea. There we are. And this evening I'm going to, um, I'm going to cover two and a half chapters. But I can assure you that it's not going to be a longer sermon as a result. <laughs> I'd be glad to know. Um, but I will read the whole thing. Um, and, you know, I, I just warn you, it's a fairly gloomy story. <laughs> but there are plenty of lessons for us and uh, we, we need to pay attention So before we read, uh, let's ask the Lord uh, to help us, and uh, as we come to his word, let's let's pray. Father, we come before the mercy seat, and we ask uh, for your help and uh, understanding. We believe that you're near, that you will hear our prayers. And that you will help us to understand what your word is saying to us. So, Father, we pray you be amongst us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord says through Hosea, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he was not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. My judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they transgress the covenant. There they deal faithlessly with me, 
Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together and they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. And they do not consider that I remember all their evil and their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad. And the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven. Whose baker ceases to stir the fire. From the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, uh, the princes became sick with the heat of, of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approached their intrigue. All nights their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread my net over them my net. I'll bring them down like birds of the heavens. I'll discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart. But they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upwards. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Amen. One of the issues that we constantly face as Christians is the tendency to to look for help in all the wrong places. We turn first to one person and then another, or we turn to an organization instead of first turning to God. And this is one of the problems that um, we see in the people of Israel and Judah. Now remember the period of history. It's about uh, just a bit more than 700 BC. Uh, The northern kingdom of the ten tribes has been separated off uh, into uh, the rebellion of Jeroboam. And the southern kingdom of uh, Judah and Benjamin um, are centered around Jerusalem. But there's a 
big divide that has happened, and this has been going on now for quite some time, uh, for a number of uh, a number of decades. And the attitude of Israel to the north, and this is where Hosea is, is ministering, is the attitude of Israel is described in terms of the activities of an unfaithful wife who has abandoned her husband. Uh, in other words, Israel is the wife and God is the husband. And Israel has forgotten God and gone after other lovers. And one of the things you notice is that Israel has this sort of vacillating set of loyalties to other countries, uh, to other nations around. Uh, Sometimes uh, it's looking to Assyria for help, the great empire to the north, not Syria, but Assyria, centered around Nineveh. And, And sometimes it's turning to Egypt, to the south, for help. And you see this kind of vacillating uh, activity. And you can read the historical background in 2 Kings, chapters 15 to 17. And there you read that, first of all, Israel is allied with Assyria. Um, and Israel essentially becomes a, a vassal state, you know, a little state under the power of a greater state. You think of the great powers in the, in the world today, and there are some states that are what you might call vassal states. They they always look to the greater state for guidance and help. It's like Western Europe always looks to the United States for its help and protection. Uh, that, that kind of relationship. But much more under the thumb, though, is Israel under the Assyrians. And, but then you find that uh, there's a kind of change of allegiance that happens under King Hoshea. And so in 2 Kings 17 verse 4... We see that Salmanezer, who's the, the king of Assyria, uh, he found treachery in Hoshea of Israel. Why? Because he started paying tribute to Egypt to the south, not any longer to Assyria. And so Israel had shifted allegiance to the southern kingdom. And so Assyria invades. <laughs> it's not having it. And it leads ultimately to the fall of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And the people are scattered. You read that in 2, Samuel, uh, 2 Kings 18. The people are then scattered. They are deported. And effectively the people of Israel to the north cease to be uh, a faithful people. They're lost and scattered. So this is the historical background to the passage that we read earlier, that there's a kind of political chaos going on, uh, which is engulfing the northern kingdom and will uh, eventually engulf the southern, you know, southern kingdom of Judah as well. Um, but of course, the issues are not just political. What Hosea is doing is saying, actually, fundamentally, the issues are spiritual and covenantal to do with your relationship to God. And the the fundamental question that's being raised is, who do you worship? Who do you turn to for help? Who do you put your trust in as a nation, as a people? 
Because Israel had forgotten God and had given itself instead to earthly alliances. In other words, finding these other lovers uh, to, as it were, get in bed with. So these verses that we've read, quite a number of them, uh, deal with some of the issues that arise in the midst of this political chaos. And I've got three divisions to consider. I don't think there's anything hard and fast about my divisions. Um, Other people might divide it up differently. Um, But uh, the first thing I want to look at is in chapter 5. It falls roughly into the chapter headings, uh, chapter sections. But the first part is the problem of looking for help in all the wrong places. The problem of looking for help in the wrong places. So this treaty with Assyria has gone sour. And now Assyria presents a, a practical problem for Israel, for Israel. Because invasion and conquest is now on the agenda for the Assyrians. And interestingly, something else is happening um, just in verse 8. There's a strange thing that happens. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Beth Avon. We, we follow you, O Benjamin. What's that about? Well, these are, these, are, these are towns just in the northern limits of the southern kingdom. And they're in Benjamin. And it's essentially the voice of Judah saying, Benjamin, we're going to follow you as you seek to extend your territory north. Take advantage of the chaos that Israel is in. And we'll follow you and take advantage of, of the chaos. Maybe gain some territory. And so Judah is going to, going to carry on this push, even as Assyria is coming down to the south. But the problem is, of course, that both Israel and Judah are facing that same greater uh, danger from outside forces. So if you look at verses 10 and 11... The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I'll pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim, which is just another way of speaking of Israel, one of the tribes of Israel. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because, because he was determined to go after filth. And who is bringing this affliction? Who is bringing this judgment? Well, it's not just Assyria. It's actually God. That God is moving in, in the, the great movements of na- men and nations. In the midst of it all, God is organizing it in order to bring justice or judgment to his people, to discipline his people. And the root cause of this, the thing that triggers it off, is in verse 11. They go after filth. <laughs> it's a nice word for that, but actually it could mean lots of nasty words, which I won't tell you about. Excrement, just another nicer word. Or a drunkard's vomit, as one commentator put it. You know, that kind of filth. You know, they're going after these horrible things. What in God's mind is are horrible things. Now, now, of course, the, the point of all this is that for all Israel's professions of faith in the, the one true and living God, I mean, they were still claiming to be God's people. 
they have actually been living their lives in a different way altogether. Whether corporately or individually. As a body of people or as individual people. They're doing their own thing. And as a result of this, and the, the work of God, life is actually beginning to go bad for them. It may well have been fine for a while to enter into a, a treaty with Assyria. But because they've forgotten God, you see, God is beginning to act. And things seem to be going wrong. And the question then is, how can we find help? And the Lord warns against the wrong kind of answer. The wrong answer is to turn to Israel, Assyria or Egypt. Verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal you of your wound. He's not able to do it. This is a warning from God. In fact, it's only going to make things worse for you. God will be like a lion, as he goes on to say in verse 14, and he will tear them to pieces completely. That's a a sobering message, isn't it? It's... What is it that the Lord would have us do in a situation like that? Well, it's found in verse 15. I will return against my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Now friends, this is one of the the lessons of a passage like this. And it's a lesson that we, we have to learn as Christians day by day, every day, all the years of our lives. That uh, we need to learn that in our sin, you see, in, in our sinfulness, we have this tendency when we, we're seeking help to, to reach out for the easy thing. The thing that might help us, uh, the thing that comes to hand most easily. But God says the thing that you need to do first of all, above all other things, is first of all acknowledge your guilt. Confess your sins. Get into the habit. And that's what is a lesson for us. We need to get into the habit of confessing our sins, confessing our guilt to God. He's not going to hold it against us if we do that. But actually he wants to cleanse us from it. That's the whole point. And so, come to God, confess your guilt, acknowledge it, do that all the time, do it daily. And then, seek his face. Seek, in other words, seek to be in his presence, before the face of God. Seek to come before him. Seek to come to to know him. And especially do this in times of distress. Use the times of distress to train you to come to God. So that's one of the purposes of difficult times, isn't it? That's one of the things that God does for us. You look at Hebrews chapter 12, for example. And he speaks about the discip- no discipline is pleasant. But it works for you a fruit of righteousness 
brought by the training that comes. That's what it's for. To train us and to teach us to seek God and see that fruit of righteousness. Now, this is not an easy habit to develop. But you only get into that habit by persistent discipline and developing, and the habit develops. That's why your prayer life at home is so important. Where you learn the habit of seeking God's face, coming to him in prayer, confessing your sins, reading the Bible, and God comes and helps you. Now the thing is, you have to do this with the whole heart. You can't be half-hearted about it, or empty-hearted about it. Still less, is it, can you just go through the motions? It's not about going through the motions. Because God can see not simply the motions of religious activity, but he can see the heart itself. He can see your attitudes. He knows what is going on under, under the surface. And so as we come to chapter 6, here we see something else. And it's a warning for us. We see feebleness, fickleness, and deceit. That's an encouraging message. Feebleness, fickleness, and deceit among the people of God. So this, I mean, it actually sounds quite encouraging when you read it to begin with, doesn't it? Uh, Come, says the people. Come, let us return to the Lord. That sounds good. For he has torn us that he may heal us. They seem to understand there's a purpose behind it. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He, his going out is sure as dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains uh, that water the earth. That sounds great, doesn't it? Let's do that. And, well, there's a problem with it. I wonder if you've ever met somebody who's got very impressive words. <laughs> they say all the right things. They know all the right things to say. And, uh, you know, at first sight, it seems really encouraging, you know, for me as a minister, to meet somebody who knows all the right things and says all the right things. And it's very encouraging uh, to, to hear that, and you think, well, great, you've, you've learned a few things, and press on, brother or sister, uh, and so on. Now, these are good things, of course. But sometimes it's not all it seems to be, is it? Sometimes people can be, look like one thing and actually be another. But they know the, the right language to use. They go to the right things to be seen. And and yet in their heart of hearts, they're quite far from God. And how are you going to know the difference? One of the things that Jesus taught his disciples in in the Sermon on the Mount, in uh, Matthew 5 to 7, towards the end of that, he says says that uh, it's by their fruit shall you know them. And the thing about that is, you know, people don't come ready-made with lots of fruit dangling from them, as it were, spiritual fruit. But actually it takes time to grow and develop. So you don't necessarily know. 
on first impressions whether it, the religion that somebody professes to have is skin deep. And you need to wait. And you need to wait. And you need to wait. And then you begin to see the fruit. And you see the genuineness of the faith that's been professed. Now, it's not, it's not for us to make a judgment in, instantly about that and to have a, an air of suspicion about people. We want to encourage people as much as possible and keep them uh, on the right track, as it were. But we're wanting to see that. We want to see the fruit in people's lives. And what becomes clear, I think, in this uh, here is that these professions of faith by Israel in verses 1 to 3 um, only come for a short time and then they seem to disappear. Look at verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Ephraim has just said all this. Wonderful stuff. And then he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes early away. It's come, it's started, it seems to be impressive, and then it just disappears. You see, this this kind of repentance that you're reading of here is, is quite feeble repentance, and it's quite fickle in its allegiances. And God says in verse 6, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's not that he doesn't like sacrifice in the Old Testament or burnt offerings. He does. But he's saying something much more important here. I want your steadfast love. I want you to know God. I want you to go deep with him. You see, God, God is very clear what he wants. And it is not a people who, out of their own strength, give what they, they, they want to give. You see, a lot of people are, are actually happy to make sacrifices and burnt offerings, if you're in the Old Testament. In the modern day, it might mean you know, the sacrifice of going to church now and again, or, or giving money in the offering, or being helpful, or what, you know, doing a lot of nice things. God wants more than that. God wants more than outward forms of piety. He wants your heart. He wants it all of the time. That's what he means by steadfast love. He wants that full-on permanent commitment to him. Not simply a momentary feeling of love that might move you to a bit of religious activity, but that faithful, consistent love that never leaves you and thus drives you persistently. Which puts the pursuit of the knowledge of God at the center of your life. And everything else kind of fits in around it. Well, this kind of half hearted doing religious activity in the hope that maybe God will answer in the end never works. In fact, it simply encourages the sinfulness of the human heart to flourish under a, a religious veneer. And I think that's why Hosea mentions the word covenant in. In verse 7, uh, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? That uh, uh, There's an interesting verse and uh, one of great discussion over the centuries 
about the relationship between Adam and covenant. Um, we often talk about Adam entering into a covenant of works or a covenant of creation or a covenant of life with God in Genesis 1 and 2. And all the signs of a covenant are there. But the word covenant itself is not used. It strangely appears here. It pops up here in Hosea. And, you know, how did Adam transgress the covenant? Well, he didn't really pay enough attention to, to God. He doubted God, or rather Eve did, and Adam went, kind of went along with it like a wimp. And, um, and he ate of the fruits that he was commanded not to. And so he transgressed the covenant that God had made with him. And that is now the model that is being used to describe Israel and their unfaithfulness. So just as Adam transgressed the covenant, and so Israel now have transgressed the Mosaic covenant. And Israel is following the same path. Remember the path of Adam. That Adam and Eve were covenant breakers, and as a result they were cast out of the garden and you remember those cherubim, the cherubim with the great flaming swords that uh, prevented access into the garden to the tree of life and so the way by obedience was, was cut off from Adam and Eve and there was no other way for them to come except one that maybe God could provide well this is Israel as well Blessings of the covenant have been cut, are being cut off from them because they've descended into this life of sin and evil. And you see that in the remaining verses of the chapter, which I'll, I'll quickly skip over. Friends, are you fully aware of the, the dangers of half hearted religion, half hearted Christianity? Are you conscious that a mere externalism can get a grip of you? And it's, but it's possible in your heart of hearts to be wandering away from God. This is, a, this is the warning for us, the lesson for us. Well, that leads us into the final chapter, chapter 7. And, uh, and what we see here is the expectation of judgment. And the warning is clear uh, in verse 2. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their evil deeds, now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. You see, God is not deceived by anything we do. He sees it all, and the consequence is that God's judgment is coming. And he works through a number of images of judgment. Um, and, and the first one is, judgment's like an oven. That's uh, quite evocative, isn't it? Judgment's like an oven. You look at verse 4. Uh, they're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven. <laughs> whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Or verse 6, For with their hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. Or verse 7, All of them are as hot as an oven and they devour their rulers and all their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. Now, what's important here, it's an interesting image because um, it's not simply that the oven is on the outside and doing something to the people of God. Actually, the, the heat of the oven is, is manifesting itself in the hearts of the people themselves, leading to anger and disrupted relationships. 
So the, the heat of judgment, if you like, is actually present in the very relationships that they are experiencing right now. And that, you know, one of the evidences that God is expressing his anger, uh, his holy anger, is the prevalence of anger in, in the people. It's curious, isn't it? That's a warning for anybody who has a tendency to fly off the handle, as my dad used to put it. You know, it's not just you're angry. Maybe God is acting. It's not a good thing to have that habit. And you need to seek God's face. Because only he can free you and change you from that habit. So that's the first image, that of an oven. The second image is of inedible moldy bread. Inedible moldy bread, verses 8 through to 10. So verse 8 presents a picture of this cake or a loaf of bread uh, that's not properly baked. And then verse 9 says something strange. It says, um, you know, it's got grey hairs sprinkled upon him. This person is like bread with grey hairs sprinkled on it. So some of the commentators think it's like mold. You know what mold is like if you let it run? <laughs> it, it, it grows these spores that grow outwards like hair on it. It's disgusting. And he's saying, you people, you're like moldy bread, inedible. It's horrific. And it's quite an indictment on the people, isn't it? Um, that their sin. There's nothing attractive, nothing that smells good about it. Just disgusting moldy bread. And that's the judgment on the people. Sometimes I wonder, and I'm not talking about this church, but you know, it may, be, may come one day. But sometimes I wonder if churches can end up like this. They may once have been warm and, uh, and attractive and have a glorious aroma about them, or the aroma of the gospel about them. Uh, wonderful living places of worship. And when visitors come, they feel the warmth of the welcome and the, the, the offer of the gospel to them. And they love, you know, it's a wonderful experience for them. But then there are some churches that have lost that, that warmth. That have lost love, that have lost that attractiveness, that aroma. And instead have become a somewhat unpalatable body of people. Even to other Christians. And they go around, and one of the fruits of that is they go around moping and complaining that nobody seems to hang around and stay at this church any longer. I wonder why. (laughs) Because they become kind of moldy bread steeped in sin, secret sins. And they become stale, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, the judgment of God is on a local church that's like that. The final image is uh, the image of a a senseless dove, verse uh, 11 and 12. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. And you can just imagine it floating around, a, a dove floating around, not aware of the danger it's in, oblivious to the calamity that's coming. Then the net comes. And they're captured. 
That's what verse 12 says. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I'll bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. And it's all over for the bird. (laughs) And that's what God is like with his people. That's what the people of God are like. Silly floating birds. They don't know what's important. And so they're oblivious and flapping around doing everything except going to God. And the nets come down. Friends, these, these are all the ways that God describes the calamity that's coming upon Israel and Judah. And for, for us, friends, it's, these are sobering words. And the sobering words are brought out from the historical experiences of Israel and Judah in the past. But we see the dangers in our own lives today. And the answer to it all is truly to turn to God. And it may take some heart searching and self-discipline. But we need to go to God. We need to develop the habit of going to God. Because with God there is grace. With God there is mercy. With God there is indeed reviving power. And he will help. Come in prayer. Study his word. Plead for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And he will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sobering words that teach us and prepare us and give us the tools to examine our own hearts with. We pray that you would help us to seek your face, to live for the knowledge of God, confess our sins, And see you do great things amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.